Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Later in the program, we conclude with part four of a series by environmental correspondent Zero Rose from an interview with Bill Brown of the Environmental Resilience Institute, or ERI, of Indiana University on how ERI assists institutions, communities, organizations, businesses, and governmental entities to plan for, mitigate, and adapt to climate change impacts. And now for your environmental reports. According to NUVO, a news organization based in Indy, Indiana lawmakers passed more than three dozen bills in the just concluded session. Most of the bills are intended to make operating in Indiana more profitable for electric and water utilities or their fuel suppliers. By the Indiana Environmental Reporter's count, Indiana lawmakers passed 15 bills affecting utilities, including some that allow them to pass more of their costs directly to consumers, prolong the life of fossil fuels, and place more hurdles in the way of large-scale renewable energy system adoption. Indiana lawmakers also passed eight bills affecting various parts of state water issues in the state. Some of the bills target water infrastructure funding and make it easier for schools and child care facilities to test for contaminants. Other bills focus on changing how the state regulates new types of septic tanks, water districts, and other issues. This year, lawmakers also focused on establishing and funding economic development initiatives that would help develop brownfields and reclaim coal mines. However, they would tax drivers who use fossil fuel alternatives and punish financial institutions that choose to limit their investment in fossil fuels. Bills regulating new technology in the state, like small modular nuclear reactors, carbon capture and sequestration, and advanced recycling have also passed, as well as bills that authorize land use studies and PFAS blood monitoring for firefighters. In regard to utility bills, the Indiana General Assembly passed bills that establish a five-pillar guideline for making energy policy decisions. One, make it more difficult for utilities to retire coal-fired power plants. Two, Allow utilities to pass on the costs of coal ash pond cleanups and other expenditures to customers. Three, eliminate competitive bidding for transmission lines. Four, allow natural gas-fired power plants to qualify as a clean energy project. And five, ensure that a planned state coal ash permitting program will be as lenient as federal law allows it to be. Lawmakers also passed a bill that would allow the Environmental Rules Board to update air permit fees, establish guidelines for communities to accept solar and wind energy systems, 
and study the best practices for the disposal of solar panels and wind turbine blades. Other bills passed would authorize pay raises for water district board members, require state homeland security authorization for expanding battery energy storage systems, set the foundation for further taxing of utilities with wind energy systems, and authorize a state program to pay for half of the costs of decommissioning or replacing underground petroleum tanks. Continuing with the Indiana Legislative Environmental Bills, there are also water policy bills. Indiana lawmakers passed two bills authored by the same legislator that deal with floodplains in different ways. Senate Bill 242 repeals the requirement for local floodplain administrators to use the best available floodplain mapping data when reviewing permit applications to build in or near a floodplain, while Senate Bill 412 among other flooding issues, prohibits the same administrators from issuing building permits if those permits threaten eligibility in the National Flood Insurance Program. The Indiana General Assembly also passed bills expanding the use of above-ground on-site residential sewage discharging disposal systems in place of repairing old septic tanks changing the requirement for water system mercury permit changes when they are proven not to contribute to Ohio River mercury problems and requiring water systems not subject to the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission to require commission approval before building a new wastewater treatment plants. Other bills make it easier for communities to receive infrastructure loans and grants from the Indiana Finance Authority require lead testing and mitigation at preschools and child care facilities and ease the process for counties to join a watershed development commission. Then there are the omissions. In addition to specific areas described above, there are a few other things that should be cited. The, the legislature still does not allow discussion of climate change. The rebuff of the climate initiative by 20,000 high school students represents incredible arrogance. The state has not chosen to improve its 48th rank in water and air quality. There was no plan to improve life expectancy in counties downwind of points of pollution such as coal-fired power plants. Finally, resolving that natural gas is not a fossil fuel is laughable. This week, we'll report more statistics regarding life expectancy. Earlier, we reported on life expectancy in each county in 2018. The differences were large. In wealthy white areas with no coal-fired plant power plants around, life expectancy was nearly 80 years. In areas downwind of power plants and other sources of air pollution, life expectancy was as low as 72-plus years. In this report, the objective is to gain some idea of the effect of COVID on life expectancy. The latest figures are available for 2021 from the National Statistics Report. The COVID effect is thus not fully captured. It was anticipated that since many Hoosiers, especially in the southern part of the state, did not comply with the mask advisory, lower expectancies were anticipated. The Indiana life expectancy, male and female, was 76.8 years in 2018, pre-COVID, and 75 years in 2021. COVID is not the only cause of the drop, but seems likely to be the major contributor. Ranking states by life expectancy reveals that Indiana ranked 40th in 2018 and 41st in 2021. Thus, our handling of the disease was typical with other states. 
Indiana is toward the bottom of states because we have a high percentage of smokers. Obesity is an issue, and we have very high air and water pollution. The top 10 states with the longest life expectancy are all blue states. The bottom 10, including Indiana, are all red states. The snowbirds among us depart for Florida in the winter to enjoy warm weather and, and beach. One of the fixtures in terms of bird life is the anhinga, a water bird with a snake-like neck. Recently, an anhinga has turned up in an unexpected place, Brooklyn. This is a sign of shifting ranges for birds from the south. Quote, what we are seeing here is likely an expanding population from the previous typical range of the species in the southeastern United States, end quote, said Andrew Farnsworth, a researcher at the Cornell Lab. He added that the Anhinga is a strong flyer and quite a migrant, so it's not necessarily a surprise this is happening. So if you see a bird swimming with just its head and neck out of the water, it could be an Anhinga living near you. In 2019, research revealed that the U.S. and Canada had lost nearly a third of their birds, 2.9 billion altogether since 1970. As bleak as this picture may be, it's not too late to make a difference for our local bird populations. You can plant trees and take other easy steps to help them thrive. Birds contribute to our food supply by pollinating 5% of all plants grown for human consumption. They also quietly go about keeping insect populations in check. A Baltimore Oriole can consume 17 hairy caterpillars in a minute. A house wren feeds 500 insects to its young every summer afternoon. And a pair of flickers consider 5,000 ants a mere snack. You can help the bird population by planting trees with fruit, nuts, or seeds that attract birds. Plant trees that are different heights and maturity. Set out a bird bath and keep it filled with clean water. Hang a bird feeder and, if possible, retain dread trees. The woodpeckers love them. These are just some ways to support our feathered friends. And now we present the final segment of Zero Rose's interview with Bill Brown, Assistant Director for Strategy and Engagement at Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute, as they explore how the campus works with the city and other institutions to secure funding, data, and expertise, while also touching on how eco-design strategies can make housing more affordable by assessing the true cost and benefits of going beyond conventional approaches to residential infrastructure. The Environmental Resilience Institute, you want to um, explain uh, what that is exactly that the university has been putting together and I guess how you're interfacing with uh, Bloomington in particular with that? Sure. The Environmental Resilience Institute was originally funded as a grand challenge of the university and uh, millions of dollars went into funding new faculty and faculty research about uh, vulnerabilities that Indiana might face in the future or currently with climate change and you know how's that going to impact crops, flooding, heat, extreme weather, uh, etc and uh, developed a lot of tools that are still being used by communities. But over time, um, programs were developed where we engage faculty and students in communities around Indiana to do greenhouse gas inventories and climate action plans. And we've had over 195 um, McKinney Climate Fellows. These are um, 
graduate students or undergraduate students at IU that are funded to do an internship with a community or a corporation or a nonprofit that uh, is subsidized by the McKinney Family Foundation. And they are educated in um, a one-week climate camp to uh, be assured that they know how to do greenhouse gas inventories or climate action plans or whatever it is they're going to be doing with their partner. And um, that system has been very successful over uh, the years. And um, there's been uh, 50 local governments, for example, that have taken advantage of that. And uh, quite a few companies, um, 61 nonprofits, 32 corporations. And what has happened uh, are a couple of things that are interesting. One is that we've been able to keep more IU students here in Indiana that want to be sustainability professionals. They want to work on climate and uh, clean tech, clean, clean energy, et cetera. And they've gotten to know people in Indiana that have then hired them as their sustainability professionals or um, what have you. And uh, the communities, the corporations, the, the nonprofits have seen this as a pipeline for hiring that they've been looking forward to and they can develop a relationship with the climate fellow during their internship and then um, know what they're getting when they hire somebody. So it's been a great professional development pipeline for Indiana. It's elevated the sustainability of many communities and corporations and nonprofits throughout Indiana. And it's provided a, a career path for students um, to participate in Indiana. And it's given their faculty mentors uh, an opportunity to train students specifically for the problems that IU communities are facing. The new wrinkle is the Indiana Resilience Funding Hub that just started. And that is specifically designed to help rural communities fill out the grant forms and administer federal grants for all this new money that's out there for resilience projects. We will hopefully develop a relationship, a direct relationship with five to eight communities, help them through the grant writing process, help identify what their issues are and what grants are available to address those issues, whether it be uh, funding for electric vehicle charging or building energy efficiency upgrades or solar or LED lighting for their street lights, whatever. Uh, there's grant money out there that's available and we want to help them obtain it. So in addition to that, there are going to be a lot of other communities we want to help through webinars, through information. So our website for the Indiana Resilience Funding Hub also has lots of portals where they can learn about grants that are coming out. They have guides. If they're a city, there's a guide for cities, there's a guide for counties, there's a guide for universities. So uh, we want to help people kind of get their arms around all this that's coming through the program and how they might take advantage of it, when it might be coming out. We've developed um, two pagers for them for common grant programs that are coming out. So we're helping communities through those one by one, and then also reaching out to the whole state of Indiana through the webinar process, through these two pagers, through the resources we have on the website, and just trying to help in any way we can, as many communities as we can, no matter what their size or where they're located, uh, get through this journey.
And with resilience in the title, uh, that seems to kind of uh, focus a little bit, not not just on uh, the preventing of climate change, but on adapting to the climate change that's already happening. And I, I know that they, I believe they've prepared maps to show projected changes so that people can look up their area, see about how much more flooding or heat issues or drought or uh, the type of things that they might be facing in order to plan ahead for that. Do you guys actually uh, do any design planning uh, consultancy as well uh, for these communities? Well, again, um, ERI has done a lot of planning uh, work with communities and also have brought the communities together in cohorts to do planning around a particular theme like urban forestry, for example, or heat mitigation. But um, the programs and the grant funding are really uh, look at climate mitigation and climate adaptation and resilience. How how quickly can you spring back from uh, a, a severe weather event or tornado or or anything, uh, a severe uh, heat wave or drought, flooding? Uh, how well is your community set up to respond uh, after an event? Uh, how are you making your community less vulnerable to those types of events in the first place? And how are you potentially keeping more greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere so uh, it doesn't become even worse in the future? So we look at all of those aspects and it is community driven. Uh, you know, we don't tell communities what they should be doing. Then the tools to evaluate their own vulnerabilities and plan together uh, what they think they should address or want to address. And then we try to help them find that grant funding that may be available to assist them to implement that program. And how do you think uh, the city of Bloomington is doing on their climate action plan goals and uh, how involved with you, with the city are you on kind of the evolution and the implementation of that? The city has been a consumer of our climate fellows. <laughs> and, um, you know, a number of our former climate fellows have worked for the city of Bloomington and uh, continue to work for the city of Bloomington as staff in the sustainability office. So one of the things that Bloomington has been doing that's very impressive is increasing the amount of funding for sustainability efforts. And they have become very adept at grabbing uh, grants as they come along. And um, so they are a community that we can point to when other communities are trying to learn how to do some of these things. And uh, they've gotten very good at it. But again, they have been consumers of many of the programs that we've offered in the past because you know it's so convenient for our climate fellows to work there. And it's so convenient for them to take advantage of that resource uh, so nearby. But you know the Bloomington, city and the Bloomington campus of IU are intertwined and uh, the populations are intertwined and interrelated. Uh, so what happens at IU is very important to Bloomington and what happens with Bloomington is very important to IU. So that's a very important relationship in terms of sustainability that is um, always active. Uh, Bloomington, I believe, is still uh, considered the most expensive place to live in the state and uh they have the new hopewell development that where the old hospital was torn down and moved out to the perimeter 
and it seems that they're kind of shaving back affordable housing and they're now talking in terms of kind of workforce housing instead of low income and they've scaled them back i think to 20 percent and the justification for that is saying that uh, because of the cost of acquiring the property in the first place and so you have these scenarios of green housing being more expensive to build on the front end is the conventional understanding but it seems to me that if they implemented these kind of uh, efficiency measures and eco design that you're talking about that and, and implemented a few other things like turning it into an urban farm so that these things become revenue sources for the people to live there and have all these eco systems right in the heart of the city close to the downtown that they could uh, mitigate a lot of that cost by turning it into green collar jobs and, and sort of uh, cottage industry for the residents instead of making it another kind of boutique high priced, you know, the majority of it that it would seem that they could possibly wipe out our stats if they made it mostly affordable, not necessarily low income designated, but under market. I mean, what do you think about, at Hopewell Development, do you guys have any any ore in that water? Well, affordable, affordable housing is really a tough nut to crack. But, um, you know, I, I do think that there's a misconception that affordability is just the first cost of the building. And, um, you know, if you look at anybody's cost of living, it's not just the building that they're concerned about. It's their utility bills and the cost of operation. So, I think the cost of operation has to be included in any building, whether it's an existing building or a new building. And there, are, uh, right now, there's uh, grant funding coming available that you can use up to fourteen thousand dollars to renovate an existing house if if it's in a low income qualified um, housing. The other thing I've noticed is that there is a Department of Energy's Zero Energy Ready Housing program. Many of the developments that have taken advantage of that program are Habitat for Humanity um, neighborhoods where uh, the whole key is affordability, but they've recognized that affordability includes affordable utility bills. And if you can make a home ready to have its own solar, uh, anticipating that that's going to get cheaper in the future or you may, may qualify for some sort of grant funding in the future, then uh, you create an all-electric affordable home that is ready for solar, and uh, that doesn't take much of an extra investment to do that. And so we see a lot of uh, Habitat for Humanity chapters that are doing that sort of thing. And uh, I had an assignment for my students where their goal was to create affordable, energy-positive housing, and uh, they were able to tackle that. And um, so, you know, I think that's a misconception that you throw out uh, energy efficiency when you're aiming for affordable housing and you know contractors will tell you that if you do it right um, affordable means that you have a building that performs very well and uh, it's a bit of a trick to pull that off but uh, you have to think about it from the beginning and again if you have a, a well insulated envelope you can downsize the heating and cooling equipment and maybe save as much money as you would have spent uh, you know, if you uh, eliminated some of the cost of the insulation or the, the better windows. So you have to think of the home as a system 
and reduce the cost of the heating and cooling systems, and then um, look for opportunities to add that solar PV in the future. And we're seeing that there's grant money now available through programs like these tax incentives programs we're seeing that makes that much more affordable. Report. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Join Indiana native plant expert David Moe at Brown County State Park on Saturday, May 27th from 1 to 2 p.m. for a highly informative session on edible plants. Learn how to identify plants, what their uses are, and rules for collecting in Indiana State Parks. Drop by the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake to learn about clever crows on Sunday, May 28th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Meet at the Activity Center patio to learn how smart crows are, and then take some time to make a crow puppet. A creek stomp at Spring Mill State Park is scheduled for Sunday, May 28th from 3 to 3.30 p.m. Wade in the Cold Creek to search for freshwater creatures. Learn how they help determine the quality of the water. Tag along on a herp hike through Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Friday, June 2nd from 6 to 8 p.m. to look for amphibians and reptiles. Learn all about frogs, snakes, lizards, and salamanders, how to find them, and their role in the ecosystem. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Pastors for Peace is sponsoring a trip to Cuba from June 26th through July 6th to learn practices focused on fighting the climate crisis. The trip doesn't take place until the end of June, but you need to register now at IFCO, I-F-C-O, at ifconews.org. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Juliana Daly. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. Juliana 
Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Snyder produced, and Brandon Blewett engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly, and we wish you a safe and happy Memorial Day weekend. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.